In a world where good news is hard to find, WAVA and One Heart DC present Good News for the City. We're here to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what his body, the church, is doing to spread this good news in the Washington, D.C. metro area, including Northern Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. As Jesus said in John 17, Father, that they may be one just as we are one. Welcome to Good News for the City. The gospel, the gospel that makes a way. Everybody and welcome to Good News for the City, the broadcast ministry partnership between WAVA Radio and One Heart DC. Well, we're so glad that you've chosen to join us today on the show. My name is Brian Bales, and I happen to be the host of this show, but also on the weekends from time to time, you can catch me as lead pastor, Christian Fellowship Church in Ashburn. And if you've ever listened to the show, you know that we have one purpose in this is to introduce you to local people and local issues that you can get locally involved to help us understand that it's the gospel that makes a way. Well, today we welcome into the studio Annie Show. She's the founder and president of Capitol Hill Christian Academy. It's a new school that's going to open its doors next fall in 2023. And she brings to that role an extensive, and I do mean this, extensive academic and professional experience in the field of education. But also she brings, more importantly, a commitment to Christ and the careful nurturing of children and families. In the world that we live in, there's a need for educational alternatives, and it's never been higher. And to quote uh, Ms. Show, there's so much in the world right now that could naturally lead us to despair and darkness. We need to understand the glorious reality revealed in God's word. And so we want to hold out these timeless truths to students and stir their hearts to hopeful action, obedience, and devotion to the God who will, as it lets us know in scripture, never leave us, never forsake us. He will never fail us. So Annie, welcome to the show. So glad to have you here today. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. Well, you know, we have the privilege on the show many times to have people who have a lot of really great experience. We always want to let our listeners know a little bit about why we're talking to the person we're talking to about the thing that we're talking to. But I have to tell you, on occasion, I read some bios. I'm like, man, I'm not sure why they're choosing to talk to me. So let me tell the people about you a little bit. You have nearly 15 years of service in government, policy, and education. You served as the Deputy Chief Operating Officer at Baltimore City Public Schools, Deputy Assistant Secretary at the U.S. Department of Education, and Senior Advisor at the U.S. Department of Justice. Prior to that, you had 12 years uh, working for the Walton Family Foundation, leading grant maker in K-12 education reform and parental choice, and the Director of Government and Community Relations. And you had an appointment uh, with the George W. Bush administration at the National Endowment for the Humanities. You've got all kinds of things that have shown up in uh, writings everywhere, but I'm just going to uh, skip a little bit to your education, a BA in political science. I love that as someone who had political science degree back in the day. Not sure I use it like you do, but Asian American studies from the University of California, Los Angeles, go Bruins. Uh, you received a master's of education policy from Harvard University and you are a fellow at the Claremont Institute as well, and was rather. Your volunteer work also includes serving as a board member of a charter school in D.C., serving as a deaconess teacher and Bible study leader at your church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, which a lot of our listeners will be familiar with. So let's just sort of dive in. And if we can, I mean, uh, you just heard that. Our listeners heard that. You already knew this, obviously, but you have a rich history of public service, particularly in this area of education. Um, talk about your calling into education. What really spurred you on to take on that type of work? 
Yeah, thanks for that great question. So my interest in missional work really developed when I actually almost lost my life at the age mm. of 14. Uh, my family and I were held hostage in a home invasion for about eight hours. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a gun, let alone had one pointed at me. Uh, we were tied up and blindfolded and we weren't sure if we would make it through the night. Uh, it's quite a long story. So in yeah. the interest of time, I'll keep it brief. But um, we learned through the trial that proceeded that my family had been targeted by an organized crime group because of my father's company. The two men who were left at my home with me, my mom and my brother uh, became the fall guys. They were both right. just 18 years old, high school dropouts, being raised by single mothers, immigrants from Vietnam and new recruits to the gang. And after mm. um, these two men untied us, they were getting ready to surrender and they were getting ready to surrender themselves. I actually asked them, why did you do this to us? Mm-hmm. And they said they didn't want to, but sometimes you just have to do what your friends do. It was pure yeah. pressure. Mm-hmm. The Lord used this uh, experience to shake me from the siren's law of self-absorption and my worldly pursuits. And the Lord was really good to protect us throughout that night. And he was even more merciful to use this to draw my heart to himself. And he was stirring my heart to really want to devote my life to the Lord and others. I knew I just couldn't live for myself anymore. Mm-hmm. And the next thing I knew about two months later, I was on a mission trip to Navajo Indian Reservation with my youth group. That's where I spent many of my summers in high school and just loved teaching kids there. I then spent my summers in college in rural China and wanted to go abroad to do missions work. I went to grad school because I knew that having a skill would provide a platform to do work overseas. But the timing and opportunities never really worked out to go back to China. And so I was sitting in my professor's office a week before graduation when he asked me what I was going to do. And that's when the idea of moving to DC came up. Thanks to my mom, I had grown up loving American history because she gave me so many books on Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. Yeah. Uh, she came to the US from Laos when communism mm-hmm. was dominoing throughout Southeast Asia. And so gave me those books because she wanted me to grow up with a great appreciation um, for what America stands for. And so when the idea came up of moving to D.C., I thought it would be a great privilege to serve in the Bush administration, as you mentioned. And I saw being in D.C. as sort of a stepping stone to get getting to real work. What I thought then was real work of missions work. Yeah, Uh, I thought it'd be great to be a part of a church uh, that is very missions minded, be able to teach at the ESL program there and have discipleship and evangelism opportunities. And I thought I would just be in D.C. for two years through the term of that appointment. Um, But the Lord had other plans. And the Mm -hmm. initial two years I was here um, actually became 15 years. Mm. And the place that I thought would be a stepping stone to do more missional work later actually provided much missional work right here, both in government um, and through serving at my church. And so this pivot to starting a new school Mm -hmm. seems like perhaps the culmination and really combination of those desires for work that is both missional and service oriented. You know, sometimes it does take um, a lot of time to exactly understand how God's plan is playing out. And that was a powerful story. Thanks for sharing it with our listeners. Thanks for sharing it with me specifically. It's again, that reminder that God never wastes our pain. He may not certainly have caused what happened to you while you were a teenager, but he decided to, to sanctify it, to use it to bring about good and to bring something into your heart that now you're like, okay, 
How do I help make a difference through the power of God in the life of people? And so eventually at some point, you know, you made this pivot to be differently on mission. I would like to say that like wherever God calls you is your mission. And so now it looks like starting Capitol Hill Christian Academy. Talk to me a little bit about what was the driving force for you behind your decision. I don't think someone just sort of wakes up one morning and decides, Hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this massive challenge on and starting uh, a private uh, education institution. Yeah, great question. So it all started in June 2021 when a friend actually sort of joked and said, can you just start a school for my kids, Annie? And the joke became a real request when two mm-hmm. other friends said the exact same thing. And to give some perspective from for where they were coming from, they were really frustrated with owners' uh, policies and increasingly agenda-driven education in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all live in D.C. and they saw that you know, the education here has become more focused on ideology than on academics. Mm-hmm. And so I took a very quantitative and qualitative approach to this. I spent the next several months doing a lot of due diligence and assessing yeah. the viability of starting a new school in Capitol Hill. I spoke with over 30 different experts in the field, school founders, school heads, and really was persuaded of the need for a full-time K-12 school on Capitol Hill. There's actually currently no Christian full-time K-12 on Capitol Hill in particular, and many faithful Christian families who want to stay in the city and serve at their churches and in their neighborhoods are being forced to move to the suburbs for better education options. Yeah. So starting the school would allow many families to be able to put down deeper roots in the community here on Capitol Hill. Yeah. Um, at the same time that I was doing this due diligence, I just so happened to be reading a book on Charles Spurgeon, Hudson Taylor, and George Mueller, and how their high view of and love for Christ led them to radical service to others. They yeah. were so entrepreneurial. And I was inspired that for the depth of their theology, they were also doers who opened countless schools and orphanages and hospitals in England and China. Mm-hmm. And they preached the truth of the gospel and sought to love and meet the practical needs of those around them. Mm-hmm. I also did a survey of the parents at my church and found that there was significant interest in the school and particularly the middle and high school grades. And that I saw really the value of starting in the younger years and moving up to middle school and high school for practical sure. reasons. Uh, but also because according to Barner research, children actually have developed their worldview by the age of 13 or eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and whether or not they know that or not is a whole different discussion, right? The educational of what is caught versus implicitly taught or explicitly taught is a very interesting conversation. And certainly it makes for uh, the importance of what it means to be around and be focused to having a God-centered, gospel-centered worldview. Now, um, you know, I, I want to just pause right now for our listeners. You can go already, even though you're launching next fall, to CapitalHillChristianAcademy.org. And for those of you who get confused from time to time, capital spelled with an O, not with an A, like our uh, hockey team, but CapitalHillChristianAcademy.org. There's some information already there. One of the things that if you go there, there's a vision and mission page that I'm not going to repeat. People have the ability to read and look at it. But I really, really wanted you, as I looked at it, I was intrigued by what you wrote there, what drove that, and ask you if you could sort of maybe elaborate on the philosophy of using the term classical Christian education and the benefits it offers. Some people may not know that there's even different styles of education, let alone different styles of Christian education. Yeah, absolutely. And to kind of illustrate this, um, I was really inspired by this when uh, 
you know, in the seventh grade, for my personal background, I had my first humanities course as a gifted program and was exposed to great literature, poetry, creative writing, and art. And I loved it. Uh, but a few years ago, I read a biography on Calvin Coolidge. And mm-hmm. one of my favorite speeches of his was entitled The Things That Are Unseen. And he reflects on the purpose of education in America and how it can support democratic liberal ideals. And it was delivered in 1923. So we're in the midst of the 20s, the roaring 20s after the Spanish flu. Industry was flourishing. There was much wealth and prosperity. And he spoke about how this material wealth required a liberal arts education to teach students or citizens how to live. Mm-hmm. He spoke about how education's purpose wasn't merely for skill development or preparation for trade, but for moral training, the developing of uh, the wisdom of Madame Curie with enlightened disposition to use that knowledge to serve others. And I think much of this kind of moral training comes from engaging with mm-hmm. ideas. So reading the great books helps us to ask and answer great questions. I think engaging with some of the greatest minds, not only discuss ideas, but think about the careful application and implication of those ideas is helpful And as we know, great literature can help children think more deeply and help them express themselves well by reading how others communicate. Their imagination and creativity can be inspired by reading fairy tales and heroic stories. And this really reminds me of a great C.S. Lewis quote that since it is so likely, he says, since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. Otherwise, you are making their destiny not brighter, but darker. Yeah. You know what? I have to tell you, as a pastor, I always feel like uh, if I'm looking for some wisdom outside of the Bible, C.S. Lewis is a great (laughs) example of where to go. But I think when we think about classical education, you just mentioned is what I hear you saying, and correct me if I'm hearing it wrong, is that we have an overt focus on what to do without understanding of how to think to get to there. And in fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 22 and Luke, when the teacher of the law tried to trip him up, what's the greatest doing I should do? What's the greatest law of the 613? He said, ah, they all hang on these principles. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbors yourself understanding that there are times we could do things without understanding the principles behind them. And that leads to lack of lots of things, but certainly as people who want to be gospel centered and have the gospel make a way, we have all kinds of people on occasion do gospel things, but don't understand why they're doing them and the purpose of them. And to, you know, we could talk forever about this. I I won't go off into that too much, but I, I think you're helping people understand raising children, raising young adults to think properly about the gospel and their role in the world and what God wants them to do on mission, which is super challenging because we live in a culture that often wants to reframe our identity uh, around an idea of performance. And the truth is performance is defined many times by things outside of you. You know, you're only as good as your last performance review that you got from your boss weekly, monthly, yearly. And all of a sudden, many times people have one boss, they get a new boss and they go from being good theoretically to being bad and nothing's changed about them. And one of the challenges in our culture is, is that many times in a performance driven culture, we can then accidentally assume that those performance evaluations is what actually gives us our identity or our purpose. But that's not where we get our security from. That's not where we got identity. In fact, you said this, that security comes from feeling accepted and it can dissolve fears of failure and encourage even greater pursuits of creativity, imagination, and growth. An atmosphere of safety and hope grows a spirit of courage, or how I would say an atmosphere of understanding that you are accepted by Jesus Christ. If you have a relationship with him, 
uh, you have a relationship with God through him, Jesus Christ. And that allows you to not have to be driven by some of these things that maybe other people be wrongly driven by, but be driven by an identity. So can you maybe for some of us who uh, haven't had the opportunity to engage at the level that you've had, or maybe haven't thought about it in the way that you have, give us maybe an example or contrast how it looks like to teach people towards identity and hope in that way versus a different way of finding performance evaluations or acceptance in a different type of educational setting? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of research done on how effective work environments are marked by a sense of feeling safe. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to emphasize the importance of a safe and accepting atmosphere because of lessons I've learned in the workplace and from reading that I've done from Charlotte Mason, who was a Victorian era educator, uh, a British educator. And I think practically, I got to see how this looks, um, again, in principle over practically and in principle over a decade ago when I went to a DARPA Christmas party with a friend who worked there and they gave away three different awards that evening. And one of the awards was given to the program manager who oversaw the hypersonic airplane that could travel from New York to LA in about 12 minutes. Wow. Um, Just a few months before that though, during a routine practice flight, they lost the plane somewhere in the Pacific ocean. So millions of dollars were lost in the Pacific ocean. But the head of DARPA said at that party that she was giving this award to that program manager because she wanted DARPA to continue taking big risks and not let the fear of failure keep them from dreaming big. Mm. We need dreamers to keep dreaming and not let the fact that something went wrong or has never been done before keep us from trying it. So I don't think she was encouraging irresponsibility or reckless behavior because after all, they still developed the technology. Um, even if the hardware itself was lost, but she was trying to maintain a culture of courage by helping her staff not be afraid of making mistakes. Hmm. So in a school setting, Charlotte Mason uh, talks a lot about or wrote a lot about how the teacher's responsibility is to ensure that a child feels safe to make mistakes when they're learning how to read or trying to work out long division. So often I think the embarrassment of failing or the toll on the ego, the fear of what others will think, keep us from trying things that would greatly benefit us in the long run. Mm -hmm. So learning, as we all know, takes a great deal of courage. We are making ourselves vulnerable in front of others. It's inherently exposing kind of setting. And so I want to intentionally be aware of that and counter that by rewarding courage and risk-taking and knowing how to discern between calculated risk-taking and irresponsibility or recklessness. Yeah. In addition to how we respond to failure or mistakes, I think it's critical to teach students to what you said earlier, that we are not the sum of our successes and that our worth is not found in what we accomplish, how well-liked we are, who our parents are, how much stuff we have. People have value because we are children of the king. Mm. And teaching students that they are already accepted as they are gives them this boldness that not to worry about failure. We want to defang the fear of failure. Confronting kind of the pervasive ideas of personal value will help students be able to accept who they truly are, that they are finite, have limitations, can't do it all or have it all, and that we're all dependent on God. Yeah, and I love, there's so much great stuff that you said there. One of them that just popped out to me was just that great delineation between having an overt failure or failure, but being irresponsibly chaotic in going after it, that understanding the what it looks like not to fall off on either end, uh, but to have that. And, and there's so many people uh, I, I watch as I work with kids, as you work with kids that are, are much more concerned with their test grade because of an environment, which test grades are important. I get it. I've got kids, all that. 
but how they define themselves and what they think is most important. What's my grade versus what did I learn? All of that. And, you know, those challenges and freeing that up. Now, I imagine a lot of our listeners, um, as they're listening to this right now, they may go, okay, great. I'm so glad I tuned into this because Annie's got a ton of information. I'm just trying to process. One of the questions that, that I get as um, what I would like to say, secondary educator, I've got a wife in education uh, that happens a lot is, you know, what are some things that I should be watchful for? Maybe my child is not in that type of environment due to geography or restrictions in some other way. You can't do it in a different environment. Could you talk about how some things maybe as a parent or as a guardian that people could be look out for, or maybe even make that turn if you like to talk to teachers who are called into the public sector, uh, whatever it be, whether it be public school or charter school or a different sort of private school about how they can stand firm and be an influence for Jesus. Yeah, having spent most of my career in the public education sector and the public sector, I think it is a very noble um, calling. And there are a lot of unsung heroes there who just daily go about doing the hard work in the trenches. And I think to answer your question, it actually reminded me of a time when I was an undergrad at UCLA. And I think one of the key ways we can, to your point, stand firm in our beliefs and be an influence for Christ in our schools is by praying. Yeah. Um, because, because at UCLA, I was spending most of my summers in China. You know, I took a class, um, I took many classes on Chinese history and international relations, and so many that I was able to double major in Asian American studies. So I was in an Asian American studies class one day being taught by a very progressive Asian American activist who was sort of a pioneer in the 1970s. And he walked into class, dropped his bag on the table and said, if you are Chinese American and you're a Christian, you've betrayed your Chinese heritage. And I was the first one to raise my hand and said, I am both a Christian and a Chinese American, very proud of my heritage and my nationality and of many good Christian missionaries. Uh, who have gone to China and helped mm-hmm. to provide schools and hospitals, et cetera. And he countered that by saying that the accountant who calculated the reparations that financially crippled China, making them vulnerable to being carved up and losing any real sovereignty in the 1900s was a self-professed Christian. I felt very attacked and like he was unfairly mon- maligning Christians. Sure. There's a lot of back and forth during class and I appreciated the rigorous debate. Uh, but after class, my friend Ben Renarco and I went to speak to him and we looked into his eyes and saw that there was so much pain in them. Like he lived through so much and seen so much. And like perhaps the statement wasn't just intellectual, it was personal. Yeah. So our tone sort of changed and went from being argumentative and defensive um, to sharing the gospel with him. And we walked away and just prayed that his heart would be softened. And so we yeah. know you know, and was reminded that the gospel's what people need the most. So, yeah. Go ahead. Well, no, I just want to say thanks for that reminder of the power of prayer. Right. I mean, I think many times, uh, rightfully so, we look for very tactical things to do. But one of the most powerful things we can't always do is bring it to the God of the universe who promises in Hebrews. It says, if you come boldly to the throne of grace, you will find mercy. You'll find help in that moment of need in that way. In the last two minutes or so, I want to get back to specifically some Capitol Hill Christian Academy specific stuff. If you can tell us how our listeners can maybe become more involved as you launch over the next year to inquire about enrollment, maybe financial support to the school, pray obviously, as you just said, or become involved. Uh, how, how would you encourage them to do that? 
Yeah. Well, first thing you can do is sign up for our newsletter, which will provide all the latest updates and news. And you can do that by going to our website, capitalhillchristianacademy.org. We're also hosting a fundraising reception uh, on October 4th mm-hmm. at the Museum of the Bible. More um, details can be found on our website. And we are very excited because um, Senator, uh, U.S. Senator Ben Sass will actually be speaking at the event. And if you can't make it in person, you can always go to our website, make a donation to partner with us there. And all there's a lot more details on our website. So yeah. please take a look at that website. Yeah, might I encourage you too? when this show is done, it'll be up on the podcast at goodnewsforthecity.com. Go there, take it, share with someone who needs to know. Annie, thank you for your time today. We're so glad that God placed you where he placed you and is using you the way he's using you to help the gospel make a way. And of course, as our listeners, if there's anything you would like to tell us at WAVA about today's show or something else, you can always send us an email to comment at WAVA.com. Again, you can get to Annie. You can just go to capitalhillchristianacademy.org. You can click on the emails, find her there, staff and leaders, and you can talk to her directly via email if you choose. Or if you so choose, you can pick up a phone if you want to talk to someone and call me right at Christian Fellowship Church. I can be reached at 703-729-3900 right there in Ashburn, Virginia. That's 703-729-3900. Well, my hope and my prayer today is if you've been listening, you understand the goodness and the power of God in every place of life, certainly in Christian education or wherever you might be, because we remind you every week and not just every week, every day of this truth. It is the gospel that makes a way. It's the gospel, the gospel that makes a way. Thank you for joining us and listening to Good News for the City, a gospel partnership between WAVA and One Heart DC. This is a partnership, movement which celebrates and seeks to accelerate the move of the gospel into the Washington, D.C. metro area. It is our prayer that through this radio broadcast ministry of Good News for the City, we will see transformed lives and communities and more and more people responding to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to help bring unity to Bible-believing people and churches in order to multiply our impact in our city, and we would love for you to join us. You can learn more at goodnewsforthecity.com. That's goodnewsforthecity.com. Or you can go to wava.com keyword good news. Or you can call us at 703 703-807-2266 and remember it's the gospel that makes a way